and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Doerr. We'll be your new Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Matt Weidinger, who's a senior fellow and Rose Scholar with us in the Poverty Studies Department at AEI, where he focuses on safety net policies, including cash welfare, child welfare, disability benefits, and unemployment insurance. Before joining AEI, he had a long career on the Hill, served as deputy staff director of the House Committee on Ways and Means, and as a longtime staff director of its subcommittee on human resources with jurisdiction over safety net programs. He's also been the principal editor of several editions of the House Committee on Ways and Means Green Book, a volume providing background materials and data on tax, health insurance, social security, welfare, trade policies, and statistics. He was also a primary staff author of the landmark 1996 Welfare Reform Law, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Act. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Matt. Glad to be here. It's great to have Matt. And, and you know, he I view him as sort of AEI's a fellow who is sort of a secret secret agent, secret weapon because of his experience on the Hill. Very practical, very doesn't come from academia or journalism, but actually worked on these issues and have there are a lot of people over there that hold him in high regard. Mm-hmm. And we we use that high regard to get his views and other views into the, the discussion over on the Hill. So we're gonna get to that. Mm-hmm. But before I do that, man, I just have to just say, Phoebe, we're back after a little Thanksgiving break. Mm-hmm. And so it's good to good to be back good with banter back. and maybe to provide a little banter. I'll give you a little uh, a little sort of story from the Door family. Okay. Okay. Big thing. Maybe maybe your family does this. Other families do. But when we go home at Thanksgiving, we're New Yorkers and we try to try to fit in a, a, a trip to Broadway to see a show. Mm-hmm. We'll get the kids interested in theater and music and arts. So we did that. And in the run-up to that, we wanted to go to, to, to Music Man, mm-hmm. which is uh, right now starring Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster. Yeah, looks good. And so I had my nieces and nephews and my un- my brother and their families all excited about this. And what did they do in advance of getting ready to see Sutton Foster on Broadway in, Ma- in Music Man? Well, they went to YouTube <laughs> and they looked at things on YouTube yeah. uh, that would get them excited about that. And I, listeners, this is important instruction. You want to do something good for yourself, go to YouTube and Google or, or put in a search for Sutton Foster rehearsal of Anything Goes. It's very good. Okay. It's really good. And it's a rehearsal. I don't know how they got it. And it's, it's, it's maybe the first time she was able to really put over this great number. Yeah. And it's just spectacular. It'll make you, it'll make you be happy for the rest of the day when you watch that. <laughs> now, you might ask, why am I telling you all of this <laughs> at this show? Well, one of the things about podcasts is that, you know, you only know the characters through their voices. So the people who listen to this podcast only know Phoebe from her voice. But a little tip, listeners, for you. If you watch that, and then you will know what Phoebe looks like. In my opinion, <laughs> Sutton Foster in this rehearsal, not in any other context. I don't know where she is, but yeah. there's a resemblance. And so listeners, if you want to know what Phoebe looks like, watch that. That's and, the only way to know. <laughs> yes, because we don't ever let. There's no photographs of Phoebe on the no. AI website. So anyway, uh, mm-hmm. now I told Phoebe this earlier. She's given me no response to it, whether she agrees or doesn't agree. And it doesn't matter. I just, um, yeah. I just had to How give How was the show? Was the show good? Well, it was a little bit, it was great. It was fun. Music Man was fun. We had great seats. So the kids loved it. But both Sutton Foster and Hugh Jackman took the night off. So we got the <laughs> understudies and that made it a little sad. Yeah. Still was a packed house 
and it was still Broadway. And my my nephew and his family are from the Midwest, so going to New York and going to a show is a big experience. So, so listeners are wondering, did the understudy resemble Phoebe? <laughs> well, no, no. And I'm not so sure that, I'm telling you, I think she resembles Phoebe in this one rehearsal YouTube video. You have to see it, okay? All right? Yes. I'm just telling you. All right, so enough of that banter. This is banter, and we won't do too much more of that, Matt, I promise. But I'm glad you joined in. That's good. <laughs> so, Matt, what I want to know, uh, the first thing is I really do want you to tell me about the way in which you operate as an AI scholar and the relationship to your experience. And and give us a little more depth on that. I mean, are are there members on the Hill that know you from your past experience? Are there staffers on the key committees that remember you and work for you? and have now risen to take your position. Is that true? Is that a part of your dynamic as a, as a fellow here at AI? Sure. You know, from the, from the outside, the world of Washington and Capitol Hill probably looks like a very anonymous, large place. But when you work for a long time, like I did, on a specific area of social policy, there's really not that many people who are involved in that. Um, and so, yeah, there are a number of members, some, you know, come and go. So we're losing some great ones like Kevin Brady, the former chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, uh, who's retiring this Congress. But then others rise and step up and to take their place. But meanwhile, there's lots of staff who make this a career. And so people that work for me along the way uh, do things like work for the majority leader or they'll work in the Senate for a, a committee or they'll take places. Um, some work for governors who work on these policies. So it's a, a relatively small universe that continues to populate those seats and thinks these thoughts and tries to come up with the best policy to promote all that. Um, my MO uh, in what I do now, and I've been here for about four years, is sort of a continuation of what I did on the Hill. So not only do I continue to work on the same issues, policies, you know, sets of stuff that I did then, but I also think about what I do as significantly advising policymakers, right? So, you know, we in these roles read the news, look at what uh, Congress and the White House are trying to come up with. And comment on that. And some significant part of what I do is try to help members decide what the right things are to do. And also, of course, advise them what the wrong things are to not do. Um, and so that's kind of how I view my role in what I do now. And I'm going to get into the sort of broad social policy uh, view and the chapter you wrote for Paul Ryan's volume that came out. But before I get to that, um, Phoebe did mention that, you know, you, you played a role uh, in the formulation of the of the welfare reform bill and the act and the implementation of it and the monitoring of it. And I just wanted to get your sense of sort of if one key element of that bill on that one program, the temporary assistance for needy families program was a work requirement or work expectation. How did that play out and what lessons do you think it provides for the way we look at other social benefit programs? Sure. Yeah, so the 1996 welfare reform law, kind of this long or culmination of a relatively long process that started in the 1980s, really accelerated when Bill Clinton said he wanted to end welfare as we know it in the 1992 campaign. He ended up not doing that after getting elected. And so Republicans campaigned on a contract with America that said, hey, one of the things we really want to do is reform welfare. And then Clinton ultimately signed that Republican-drafted welfare reform law. One of the major things that did was it changed the expectation over welfare checks in the country. So the, the basic payments to primarily single moms with kids who are low income, it went from basically expecting very little to expecting the moms to do something in exchange for those benefits. 
And so that changed the dynamic of who's collecting benefits, what's expected of the people who are collecting benefits, how quickly they leave benefits because you're helping them go to work. And for some, they never went on benefits because there was this new expectation you had to do something in exchange for benefits. Some people were working and not telling the welfare office they were working, so couldn't be in two places at once in effect. So the welfare rules dropped for those reasons. Others were successfully helped to go into the world of work. And so those are all good things, including because taxpayers are paying less to individuals that really can and and should support themselves. And more of them are actually in the workforce. The labor force participation level for never married mothers and for single women generally went up. And we've had some trouble with labor force participation uh, lately in, in other contexts. But for that period of time, this group that had been out of the labor force re-entered the labor force. Right. And if the idea was always to get them a job, it was an effective way of getting them a job. That's right. And that conditionality works two ways. It's, it's most often commented on the media and politicians in positive and negative ways saying, oh, well, this is a requirement on individuals. And, you know, some people make it sound stern and bad and, you know, all that. But really what it was was a requirement that states engage individuals and try to help them, right? Mm-hmm. So it's one thing to run anonymous welfare programs that churn out checks every month and convince our, ourselves that we're being compassionate by sending out all these checks to, you know, basically subsidize people uh, not working and not care that they're not working and not care that they're not moving up the ladder like other Americans do. It's a very different thing to operate a program that has appropriate conditions that I think most taxpayers, most workers think are, are reasonable that say, hey, we want to help people, but we want people to help themselves too. And that conditionality, I think, was one of the fundamental changes that was made in 1996. And isn't it, is it fair to say that that conditionality in that program, which was a big change for millions of, of recipients of assistance, has stayed in place, that's true, and a lot of people have gone to work and labor force participation among that group has grown, all good, and states have in various ways, tried to do what you say they're being held accountable to do. We haven't spent any more money. The actual dollars invested has remained flat. So it's one program that's actually seen over time a savings. Yep. So all that's happened. But meanwhile, and this is goes to another part of your work, how big is the rest of the safety net that is all around it? And where is, is there work conditionality in any of that? So, yeah, so I, I think of this kind of as a balloon, right? So we squeezed one part of the balloon that was the former AFDC program created in, by Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal that became the Temporary Assistance for Needy Family Program in the 1996 Welfare Reform Law. And meanwhile, liberal advocates in D.C. are not sitting still, right? So they have pushed to expand the other parts of the welfare state. And by that, you know, you, you think uh, primarily about things like food stamps, but also housing and then other programs that evolved that have been generically known as work supports that are designed to basically pull along the same direction as welfare reform had, which is, you know, people think about welfare reform often in the form of sticks, but there were also carrots that were involved. So the child tax credit was created in 1997 that subsidized low-income parents going to work. That accompanied the EITC, which was created in the 1970s, that also subsidized folks going to work and rewarded them for going to work. So various other parts of the system have expanded and grown and in some ways been more welfareized uh, than they were before uh, along the way. And and this goes to sort of just the global fiscal picture or, or but when you put it all together and you're, you know, you, you did used to put it all together as a leader of the staff of the Ways and Means Committee, we do quite a lot for poor Americans. Is, is, give me a sense of the size of the safety net 
and its growth, sure. even while we did this tough welfare reform thing that saved money in this one area, the fact is the, the welfare system in general has gotten bigger, in, adjusted for inflation. Absolutely. So intrepid listeners may want to turn to American Renewal, the <laughs> volume that uh, Angela Rashidi, Scott Winship, and I just uh, did a chapter in that was edited by Angela Rashidi and Paul Ryan about reforming the safety net. And in that, you will see one of the first things we have is a chart that describes, lists all of the 80-something federal means-tested benefit programs. And that's so big that it actually occupies several pages in the chapter. Um, so numerically, it's large and vast, but in dollar terms, it's grown too. So if you set as- even if you set aside the fastest growing programs, which in general in the government are healthcare programs because of healthcare inflation, that's a whole separate set of issues. So like exclude Medicaid, which is our primary means-tested benefit program uh, providing health assistance to low-income Americans. And just look at the cash-like parts of the safety net. So there, you're talking the child in EITC, the, the various tax credits, subsidized work, disability benefits, food stamps, which is really cash-like at the end of the day. You look at that, that actually has doubled in size since welfare reform. So we are spending more and more all the time to try to assist low-income parents. And you know, there's, there's a running debate about whether this stuff works or not. Um, and there's all sorts of arcane data you know, manipulation that goes on in places like D.C., that looks at one set of data that says, oh, no, 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 child poverty hasn't changed at all. And then you look at another set of data that actually counts for what we've done, and it shows that child poverty has significantly dropped since welfare reform. So we do a lot. We do increasing amounts, um, and in various moments, especially in recessions and the pandemic, we do a ton. And we often do it for working families, but we also do it for non-working families, even though we have this work requirement in the one, that one program. And I just want to zero in on the vernacular and the vocabulary of safety assistance, safety net assistance programs and the use of the phrase tax credit or, or, or yeah, tax credit in either the earned income tax credit uh, context or the child tax credit. Uh, one thing I think about Matt, Matt is kind of like the regular guy. At he's, he's, he's in touch with, you know, who was the guy in the Biden campaign or the Regular Joe, wasn't there somebody in the Biden or the Romney? You're talking about Joe the plumber? Joe the Joe plumber. The plumber. <laughs> Thank Joe you, the Robert. Plumber. I'm sorry. But, but you are Joe in the touch plumber. with real Americans in a way that some of our other scholars are not. If you want to know the truth about it, I, and I stand up to that. I, that is true. And I think it's a compliment. Thank you. Um, you have eight kids. Three of them are athletes. Two are in the United States Army. You're a real American, man. Thank That's you, Robert. Really I appreciate it. Okay. <laughs> so getting back to that. Don't you think the use of the phrase tax credit when it's really a cash benefit being written in a check form from Washington to a citizen who doesn't work and doesn't pay taxes, isn't that a little bit of a misnomer or a euphemism or a trick? People that want to expand welfare payments are using to get them over uh, in the American populace and discussion? Sure. Well, so we could have a whole banter uh, episode (laughs) on exactly this one. But yeah, to unpack that a little bit. So since the 1970s, I think politicians of all stripes have latched on to the power of tax cuts, right? So it's not just Republicans that support Mm -hmm. tax cuts. So Democrats, in some cases, even especially Democrats, want to say that they're for tax cuts too. But they don't want tax cuts for rich people. They want tax cuts for poor people. But the problem with that is 
where people don't really pay a lot in taxes because they tend not to earn that much. And they especially don't pay a lot in income taxes. So these federal income taxes, federal income which taxes. is what the ones in Washington are only talking about. They don't set sales taxes at the state level. They don't set property taxes at the state level. So the only taxes they ever deal with, well, maybe I'm exaggerating here, are federal income taxes, which I don't think you pay until you're fairly far up the income scale right. in terms of dollars earned. Right. And, and further confounding this when it comes to questions like the child tax credit is the existence of the earned income tax credit. So the earned income tax credit was created in the 1970s as a sort of subsidy for low-income parents to go to work and, you know, kind of an alternative to the welfare system. And it, its original design was to replace payroll taxes. So the idea is payroll taxes, the taxes that start on the first dollar, should not tax you into poverty, yeah, right? Yeah. So the That's government will give you a check to replace the payroll taxes, even though the payroll tax-funded systems like Social Security are heavily progressive when they pay out. But at the moment you're working for them, they're really not because yep. everybody pays the same percentage on the first right. dollar on up. So now along comes the child tax credit and attempts to do the same thing again. And it's already been done. That's right. <laughs> right. So it's difficult. But you see this in President Biden, who cloaks the logic of proposals like what was in the American Rescue Plan to do a fully refundable child tax credit. And I'll have to explain that in just a second um, as a tax cut for working Americans, which <laughs> is 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 really ironic because the people that got the biggest benefit from the American Rescue Plan child tax credit expansion in 2021 were individuals who didn't work at all and paid zero in taxes. So they went from zero uh, child tax credit to as much as $3,600 per child, which is a, you know, a big deal. And, you know, back to our discussion about welfare is really largely an effort to overturn some of the positive pro-work features of the 1996 welfare reforms that liberals really have been striving to undo for the last generation. Yeah, it's a way to get back a cash benefit entitlement, regardless of what people do with regard to work or, or addressing their underlying circumstances. But even that fully refundable phrase drives me nuts. It, it, is, it is exactly backwards <laughs> of what a normal person would think, right? Exactly. It's not There's say, the plumber. It's, mm -hmm. See what I mean? It, it's not <laughs> saying somebody who is a working parent who paid taxes and is subject to the cap which today is $2,000 is the child tax credit cap, gets a fully refunded amount, meaning if they paid $4,000 in taxes and have one kid, they would go from $2,000 child tax credit to a $4,000 child tax credit. It's not that. It's the opposite end yeah. of the income right. spectrum. It's yeah. saying people who didn't pay taxes or paid very little in taxes get a full amount regardless of how little in taxes they paid. So that, I mean, let's just put it all together. The, the expansion of the child tax credit, the current status of that is that it was in the Biden COVID relief effort. He wanted it to be made permanent in his original Build Back Better. Uh, it looked like it was going to get through. It didn't because Joe Manchin said no. Then they did the Inflation Reduction Act without it. And now they're saying we want to revisit this loss that they had previously and Senator Bennett is a big leader of this, and they're they're re they're re saying we need to bring this fully refundable child tax credit, what I call welfare payment from the IRS, to people who don't work, regardless of whether they work, back into um, existence. And the negotiations going on right now during the lame duck. Right. What is your experienced view of whether that could happen during the lame duck? So it's, it's worth kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, if this has been a priority for the left to create these 
welfare checks for non-workers, how come they let it lapse in the first place? Why did they only make it effective for one year? And that's an interesting story, too. That's a good story about how Washington works as well. So there's Democrat majorities in the House and Senate, very slight ones uh, as a result of the 2020 elections. Uh, in fact, the House majority is exa- was exactly the flip of what Republicans will have going into 20, uh, 2023 session. And President Biden is a new Democrat president. So as we have seen repeatedly, when you the stars align and majorities in the House and Senate and White House uh, are, have the ability to have their way, they produce a big bill. And so 2021 was no different. From 2009 with the Obama stimulus law, now you had the Biden stimulus law in effect. So they had a decision to make about how much stuff to pile into that thing and how permanent to make that. Mm -hmm. And they had a negotiation about what the top line number was going to be. They ended up saying, for whatever reason, oh, well, um, we can't go above $2 trillion in spending on that. So they ended up with $1.9 trillion. So now the bargaining becomes, well, how much stuff goes in there and how permanent is it? So on the child tax credit, the decision was made, largely for budgetary reasons, that they were only going to do one year of this policy at a cost of something like $100 billion, which is a big amount. It's like, let's, let's, let's operate two food stamp programs instead of one for this year, right? Definitely um, inflationary, right. without question. Well, I mean, you had senior Democrat economists admitting and arguing before the thing was put into law, that it was going to be inflationary, not just after the fact. Right. Actually, while it was being drafted, they were making these arguments for Larry Summers. So they did it for one year, primarily for budgetary reasons, because had they put this policy in place permanently, as President Biden had said he wanted to do, it would have cost $1.6 trillion over just the first 10 years. So, you know, this enormous amounts of money going to these, this new regime of government checks being paid out. I mean, the numbers here are really staggering. So the child tax credit, in addition to being increased and the sort of welfareized feature that we're talking about, was made payable on a monthly basis for the first time in the bottom half of 2021. That meant the IRS, in the course of three months, had to turn around and create something like 65 million checks every month, which is actually bigger than the social security programs that FDR created in the 1930s. So if you look at the survivor's insurance that currently pay, right? So it's like saying, hey, we're going to run another social security administration all of a sudden. Out of the IRS. Yeah, good luck IRS, right? You have three months to set this thing up. So 35 million households receiving something like 65 million checks for each month from July through December 2021. And then it stops because of this sort of budgetary calculation that they went through saying, well, we only want to seem to pay for it for a year. We'll, we'll, we'll figure it's going to be so popular that there'll be a groundswell of support for this. And what they really didn't count on was Joe Manchin and unified Democrat or unified Republican opposition in the Senate that said, hold on a second. This is pro-welfare. Well, well, we can't you, afford you covered it, a lot of issues there. But the, I mean, I think you, you do shortchange the fact that you could justify it being temporary because we were in the middle of the lockdowns associated with COVID. You could say, we need to do this now for emergency reasons because of these crazy lockdowns. And but that, that, doesn't, that is the opposite of what Biden said when he argued it should be made permanent. Yes, right? I, I know they wanted it permanent, and then they thought it would be popular, yeah. and we'll just come back, and of course we'll get it, because once you give something to somebody, right. you can't take it away. It's very difficult. But, but let's go back to the sort of Washington, Washington roles that people play and your knowledge of the various players. You're a social safety net expert, so you had spent a lot of your time with HHS or maybe with HUD. The organizations that and the states you mentioned the states, mm-hmm. but the other aspect of this, leaving aside the money and the non-work, 
is the new responsibility for the Internal Revenue Service. Mm -hmm. And I admit, you know, in the, in the EITC context, but they do. They receive a return, they process it, and they send out a refund. And sometimes those refunds go to people who, who worked a little and are part of the old welfare system because they've gone to work. That I can kind of accept because it's the, in response to a received return. But this child tax credit, you didn't even have to file a return. The IRS just figured out who you were, where you were, and sent you a check. Right. But it's also based on benefit payments and all sorts of data sources. That's right. But it was still a huge administrative burden for the IRS, right? And No, we- but I also think it's a new function. Isn't isn't I mean if I was a if I'm if I'm one of these sort of think logically person I think of the IRS as my, as the revenue a- agency whose job tough enough as it is is to raise revenues and to, and to, and to implement the, the tax code right. now we've decided no we want the IRS to be the social services providing agency oh a- absolutely and, and and not only that um, it's paying out these checks on a monthly basis in 2021 right, right? so. You know, people think of tax season as the spring and then you get your refund check whenever you get refund check and all that. Now, now the policy was, at least briefly, the IRS every month is going to be a de facto welfare paying agency. In fact, I looked at this and the IRS became temporarily our largest welfare paying agency in America, bigger than the Social Security Administration, which pays, you know, means tested disability checks and food stamps and all that other stuff. So it, it really had enormous... Change. So so let's talk about the states for then. So okay. So and, and I don't even know what your attitude is because you work with state administrators of social services programs for 20 years and you've watched them and observed them their successes and their failures. We're not all I used to be one. So mm-hmm. you know, you, uh, <laughs> you that's, won't dwell too much that's on that. <laughs> um but I mean isn't there some fancy um and this is really going to reveal my think tank presidency inadequacy? Subsidiary? Isn't that a big word in your academic world? That, what's that Joe mean? Joe the plumber wouldn't know. That's <laughs> <Yeah>. for sure. <laughs> subsidiarity. Subsidiarity. Paul Ryan talks it's about subsidiarity. Big, and so does mm-hmm. Yuval. Mm-hmm. And what is it? What is it? it it's, I'm going to tell you what it is because I don't want it. <laughs> it's the solution to the problem should be handled at the closest to yeah. the person, mm-hmm. right? Sure, the local entity, yep. the state. Isn't this IRS takeover of a social services responsibility, care for the poor, a rejection of that concept that we ought to delegate to states and localities those responsibilities because they're best positioned to help people? It is. And, and in fact, back to the American Renewal chapter, that was actually one of the principles that we built into our proposal for reforming the safety net, which is to revive the state role in solving problems. Mm -hmm. Because if you have an ever-growing federal space, from a state standpoint, they are happy to accept federal subsidies for this or that and turn them around and spend them. And a good example is a food stamp program without asking the question, well, what exactly are we doing here? How are we really helping people go to work and support themselves and all that? And the child tax credits, especially in this sort of like child allowance way of uh, being welfareized, is, would really be that. Mm-hmm. And the typical state would look at that and say, bring it on, feds. You know, we are happy to accept your money and spend it. In fact, that lets us spend less state money and provide less state effort to actually solving these problems. Can you contrast just, I mean, I think that in in contrast to just getting an IRS check, like what does it look like to receive that service at the state level? Because I think a lot of people, a lot of this gets lost in just kind of like the punitive nature of like having to find a job and the burden on the recipient. So I know that there's a lot of additional touch points that state providers do offer to people. So what does that experience look like as opposed to just receiving a check? Well, in some ways, a key part of it is actually going somewhere, mm-hmm. meeting somebody, right? You know, the the way these checks were dispensed in the bottom of 2021 was 
they would automatically ping into your checking account or savings account, or in some cases you just receive a check and that would be it. Going forward, that's a really bad way to operate a welfare system. There, there are people in this town, in D.C., that think the very best thing that we can do, perhaps the only thing we should do, is just give people cash, right? That, that welfare and any sense of expectation, any showing up anywhere is really discriminatory and has negative effects on people and all that. That's not how the real world works. I, you mentioned I have a bunch of kids, Robert. I, it certainly would not be the way a responsible parent would conduct and raise Children, not that American, you know, people are children and all that, but that, you know, you get the point that it is appropriate when people are seeking assistance to try to actually understand what their problem is and help them overcome whatever that problem is that keeps them, unlike ninety-five percent of other folks in a typical month where you know you have a five percent unemployment rate, are able to pay their bills and and make do. So you want them to be like others, and that often involves overcoming challenges. And they, they can be really serious. They can be not so serious, but it doesn't make much sense to just look the other way and anonymously hand people cash as if that's the only solution that's, that's needed. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought that up, Phoebe, because that is a uh, and it's a thing that conservatives get wrong, too, because mm-hmm. conservatives think of it as bureaucrats, hassle, busybodies. Uh, but the fact is we're talking about individuals who are often single parents. They're often young. They often have limited education. They might have a high school diploma, but they probably don't have a college degree. They are often uh, have some experience with substance abuse and mental mental health issues. They have maybe problematic relations with their own parents and with their housing situation. They may be, and they are often inexperienced parents, new to that responsibility. They may have uncertain relations with the other parent of their child. All of those things are worth talking about with mm-hmm. an, with someone who is making some effort or they're worth just acknowledging that they should be talked about. Mm-hmm. A check from Washington says, oh, no, we don't need to talk about that. That's, that's not, we don't need to worry about that. And it does eliminate the bureaucrat and the hassle and the having to go to an office and stand in a line maybe to see somebody. But my view is that is ultimately helpful to people because it gets them out of their homes and into the community to, to, to seek aid and seek assistance. So I think there's a way underappreciated aspect of this debate. It's a lot of debates about work and Matt, you've been involved in that, that the extent to which these checks come, fewer people go to work, labor force participation goes down and, and, and earnings drops. But it's not just that. It's also an inability or to require some look, some attention to underlying issues that have are related to why these individuals are in this situation mm-hmm. of needing aid from government or not having any earnings. And so um, I'm glad you brought that up, Phoebe. Mm-hmm. It is, and that, again, that's the old state administrator and me coming out. Mm-hmm. But that voice is not heard very much in Washington. You hear the advocates. Yeah. You hear the federal congressman. But the, the state perspective of the local social service worker sometimes gets lost. Well, I would argue that one of the reasons for that is because we are drifting increasingly towards Washington yeah. as the solution for this. So certainly in Washington, you never hear it. And, you know, I, I spend a lot of time reading about what states are doing, and you don't hear a lot of it from the state standpoint either. I think because of this larger dynamic of federal government basically trying to solve everything and removing uh, or moving further and further away from subsidiarity. So last question on just the tax tax credit before we go to other topic other aspects of your of your book and your chapter with Scott. You are a congressional 
veteran, congressional staff veteran, do you think the expansion and extension of the child tax credit to non-workers can get done? First of all, do they need 60 votes in the Senate? And can get done in the lame duck. They, they, they do need 60 votes in the Senate because there is not a reconciliation bill that I think is available or can be quickly dusted off and, and rushed through in time to make this work with just 50 votes. So that's a pretty high bar for the Senate. You have to get, you know, in the current. It's not just Joe Manchin. Uh, that's right. You need to get 10, 10 Republicans to come up to the other side, plus Joe Manchin and all the and, and Democrats. Is there some sweetener that the Democrats can give the Republicans that would make 10 Republicans vote for this um, expansion of, of welfare? Well, you know, so the left has been publishing reports for in recent months uh, in its various salons in D.C. about, oh, wouldn't it be great to trade a revival of the sort of welfareized child tax credit with whatever business tax breaks the right is looking for? Mm-hmm. But uh, they've kind of been smoked out, no, no less than the uh, Wall Street Journal has said. That's really a bad political and policy trade, and, and I fully agree, um, including because – even if you accept that only Republicans care about these package of business tax breaks that would be sort of the other side to this, which isn't true, by the way. Lots of Democrats support things like research and development tax credit and that package of stuff. You're going to have a more Republican, at least House, next year. They're going to have more wherewithal, more leeway to get things done. There's always a crush to do things at the end of the year. But if things are not done at the end of the year, there's more pressure to get them done early in the next year. There will be other opportunities to do those sorts of things. So I, I hope the folks who are making these decisions now hold firm and don't accept a bunch of bad policy in the name of doing something in December that can be done in March, yeah. right? Because somebody says, oh, you must do this now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Senator Bennett did say to Politico that I think Republicans really want these tax credits for business. And I think I, I'll make them give me my child tax credit in return for that. And you're saying that seems like a pretty fanciful wish, given that he needs 10 Republicans or nine Republicans. Yeah, I, I, I hope that's the case. There's always this sort of scrum at the end of Congress right. where people are looking for their spending for this or that. And it's amplified now, I think by desperation is probably too strong a term, but it kind of heads in that direction of outgoing Democrats looking for one last bite at the apple to put in place or you know solidify the position of their preferred policies. But I hope Republicans are smart enough to say, no, we can turn to this next year. So another topic that Matt works on a lot is unemployment insurance. I don't want to get into that entire uh, weedy subject in, in, in great depth. And, and now that we've been out of the COVID crisis a long time, what is the current status of the unemployment insurance system? If, do, people, do people learn any lessons from the experience that happened during covid What's the status of it? So um, the unemployment insurance system has basically returned to its normal state, right? So state it's primarily a state-run system where states collect payroll taxes. That It is weedy. It, the payroll taxes are held in the U.S. Treasury, and there's this whole like funding system. But in most times, when people collect unemployment checks in America, they're collecting state unemployment checks that their employer paid taxes into a state trust fund to support. That's where we are now. States pay typically up to 26 weeks, some pay less. Um, a couple will sometimes pay more, but that's it. Um, and because we are- And the amounts are set back at what they were traditionally set at. They don't have this boosted up COVID payment. That's right. That's right. It's whatever the, the states determine. So this is a primarily a state-run system. The federal government requires states basically to have this okay. system, but lets the states determine the terms, who collects, how long, and how much per week. We are beyond the point where we had the large pandemic 
expansions that I've written about, a lot of people have read about, where we did things like for the first 17 weeks of the pandemic, pay everybody who collects an unemployment check in America an extra $600 on top of their regular check. That was at a peak payable to some 33 million people. If you count fraudulent claims and double counting and various things. So just an enormous amount of those significant payments. And economists looked at that and said, well, you know, this actually is paying people more in checks, unemployment benefit checks, than they would make from working. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time in America, we were, we were operating an unemployment system that was more robust than in fact our employment system was in terms of how much and people And the purpose made of paying it. a lower amount is you want to have the incentive to go back to work and, and, and get the higher earnings, the higher return that comes from work. Right, right. And this isn't some Republican plot. This, this was is, the design of FDR yeah. in yeah, the yeah, 1930s. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Yes. Okay, so that's that. And what about what else in your volume, in your chapter, in, in the Paul Ryan uh, American Renewal chapter, that you want to highlight that you and Angela and Scott are particularly proud of as a new thing that you sure. think is worth talking about. So, so we basically proposed three things. Number one, we would reform the tax credits, the child tax credit and the earned income tax credit to make it be more work and more pro-marriage. So there are, there are some ways that the earned income tax credit, especially today, actually discourages two individuals from getting married because their two payments as individuals would be less than their one payment if they were married. So uh, we try to overcome issues like that because we all know that you know, people who pay some attention to the success sequence that if you graduate from high school, work full time and get married, your chances of being in poverty in America are almost nil, right? So strong families, strong, you know, households with children um, are, are especially uh, are those that are uh, include two married parents, right? right. Th those tend to avoid poverty the most. So um, we reform the tax credits to be pro-work, more pro-marriage. The second thing we do is what I've uh, sort of previewed before, we look at the current system and ways in which especially federal funds are used to wholly pay for what can be loosely called welfare benefits. So food stamps, housing, disability checks, things like that, where the states are often administering these systems and they are perfectly happy to accept 100% federal funding to turn around and send that money out for reasons that we talked about. And we say, you know what, this is really a bad idea, right? Because we shouldn't be subsidizing we should be paying more for what we want and less for what we don't want. And so what we propose is, over time, reducing the amount of federal funding for some of these major welfare benefits to not 100%, but to 50%, saying the states actually have a responsibility here, too. Now, I don't know how many state administrators or governors listen to this podcast, Robert, but if they did, they would be outraged at this point. Yeah, I know. I, I use This proposal, uh, you know, I do a lot of things at AI, so I don't follow every chapter of every book that we put out. When I heard this at the Paul Ryan event, I was thinking, oh my God. That's not they? the end of the story. <laughs> so the rest of the story, it goes something like this. We give the states credit for the degree to which they are successful in getting people from not working and collecting benefits and into work. And by what that I mean is if somebody's not working today, but then they go to work and they start receiving a $10,000 tax credit for working, the states can count that money as if it were state spending towards the welfare program that they have this now, you know, 10 years down the line, 50% requirement to help support. So the more successful states are at helping people leave these federal benefits and go to work and support themselves, the less the states have to contribute. So and a greater and, fiscal benefit to them. Exactly. And, you know, and it that's makes, what we want. Exactly. So we, we, our goal was to take the architecture of the safety net and make it so everybody has a win from doing the right thing. Individuals have a win from, from 
going to work and getting married, they get bigger credits. States have a win from helping people not be dependent, but instead be independent and working and supporting themselves. So that's a pretty significant change from where is, we have it's been. It's not small. This is not, uh, you know, same old, same old this chapter. I'll yeah. Tell you that. Yeah. It, it's, it's definitely like, so, you know, cause sometimes the, the guys like you, and I'm a little bit associated with guys like you who always talk about the success of welfare form, they get laughed at for being, come on, can't you talk about something else? Right. right. Yeah. So <laughs> that, that's, def- that's definitely true. Like the, 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 Hey, what's the next round of welfare reform going to look like? It has usually boiled down to take the 90, 1996 reforms and apply them to other programs. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, Work requirements and time limits for food stamps. Work requirements yeah, and time and, limits and for housing. Not, and you didn't do that. And, yeah. So this is different. This is a much more fundamental change. And, and in part, I think it's because we're in a different spot now. We are headed in a direction, as the whole Paul Ryan volume says, mm-hmm. where the government's promises across the spectrum are really in question. And, you know, so the big one, the obvious one is 10 years from now, the Social Security Trust Funds run out. What's going to happen then? But it's more than that. It's promises on health benefits and, you know, you name it, all this stuff when we're running trillion dollar deficits in good times and we know that with the retirement of the baby boomers, our commitments in terms of benefit spending are only going to rise. How are we going to make this all work? And so that requires a much more fundamental assessment of where we are and how do we change the financial architecture? And that's, that's why we took the the route that we did. So this has been a great conversation, Phoebe. I don't know if you have anything more to add. I I apologize for starting the show with a little bit of silly banter. (laughs) Now everyone's going to have to watch the clip. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I apologize to you, Matt, for for making you listen to that. But but I thought the dialogue we had about your chapter and your work was outstanding. So thank you very much. Do you have anything you want to make sure you say that Uh, you haven't said? Christmas, happy holidays. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. That's good. I Probably like our that. last one of the year. Happy New Year. I don't know how I can get along. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, thanks listeners for listening. Thanks, Phoebe. Thanks, Matt. See you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org. AEI is excited to announce the launch of the Civic Renewal Fellowship. This fellowship will select 20 to 30 exceptional professionals to join AEI scholars and leading practitioners in a one-year program. They will learn more about the principles of civil discourse and how to help rebuild our nation's institutions from the local level on up. The deadline to apply is Friday, December 16th. To find out more information and to apply, please visit aei.org front slash civic dash renewal dash fellowship front slash. If you have any questions about the fellowship, please email civicrenewal at aei.org. We look forward to receiving your application and we hope you consider sharing with your network.